Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This podcast is sponsored by Royal London, who, as proud sponsors of One Day Cricket, are also the UK's largest mutual life pensions and investment company, providing financial services to millions of people across the country. To find out more, visit www.royallondon.com. Hi, I'm Simon Hughes. Welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. We're going to spend a bit of time this week talking about the domestic game, both the county championship and also even the village championship as well. But we'll also look ahead to the one-day series between England and West Indies. It does seem a bit strange. We're deep into September and there's still a one-day series to come. It's a significant one, though, for the West Indies because they need four victories at least to qualify for the World Cup. Otherwise, they'll have to go into a qualifying tournament. So they have got a lot to play for in the last two weeks of the English season, which is going to finish right at the end of September. And it's so ironic, isn't it, that uh, in the past, the West Indies have been here at the beginning of the season in May, getting the short straw and you know, shivering and you know damp and everything. And now they've got the tail end of the season where it's even colder, probably. I mean, look, Durham the other night, it was eight degrees. The poor Sky Boys in their caravan were frozen stiff. We had Bumble in his shawl. It looked like somebody wearing a burqa almost. It was amazing. And the West Indian players all had their hands in their pockets with those hand warmers to try and keep them warm. So I do feel a bit sorry for them. They've got to win four out of these five. But I think they've got a good chance, actually, because they've got some, some decent players on, on the evidence of that T20 game anyway. The bizarre thing, of course, about that game is they wanted the game called off, didn't they? At one point, they were saying, oh, you know, is it fit to play when they looked as if they were under pressure and they came back brilliantly to win. Anyway, we'll talk about West Indies against England in a short while. Let's focus on Essex, though. Well, that's, I mean, that's an amazing story, isn't it, to come up from the second division and win the title. At the start of the season, we gave our predictions. I mean, it's, it's so tight, you, you feel, the, the championship these days. So many competitive teams. Just look at how many teams could go down as we enter the, the last two rounds of, of matches. But brilliant from Essex to, to, to triumph for the first time for so many years. And it's nice to see a team with so many homegrown players as well. I think eight of the winning 11 were Essex developed players and they've also selected some some canny 
overseas players. I like the the tactic they've used, which is sort of a, a game within a game, which is to have left arm over fast bowlers. So that was Neil Wagner and then Mohamed Amir, who obviously are, are fine bowlers in their own right, but then creating rough for the off-spinner, Simon Harmer, later in the game. He can aim into that rough from the left arm over bowlers and, and spin his off-breaks, and he's been phenomenal discovery or introduction to the team, along with Jamie Porter. So what they've done is they've kind of strategically brought in some useful bowlers who dovetail well together and mainly homegrown batsmen. Did you think they had much chance of winning the title at the start of the season? I know you went for Middlesex, your old county. Well, I suppose I was a bit biased because I'd seen Middlesex play quite a bit and obviously they felt at the beginning of the season that they'd found this ingredient, this formula for winning the championship. Uh, they were unbeaten last year. There was every reason to think that they might go through another season unbeaten. They had pretty much the same players, but th- things have moved on. Essex have, have come up with their different formula I think they must owe a lot to Alistair Cook at the start of the season for just giving them a bit of self-belief. You know, they won that difficult game against Somerset where they were chasing something like 250 on a turning pitch and, and Cook anchored that that performance, that run chase. And I, I, it's all about self-belief in the end. A lot of these counties, as you say, are very similar. Lots of very good players, but they haven't got that that extra ingredient, which is total confidence and conviction to win games. And winning is a habit and Essex have just found it. Jamie Porter's an interesting story, 24 and a half years old, 190-odd first-class wickets at, at 24. He sort of gave the first-class game one last chance, didn't he? I mean, could he be an England bowler, do you think? I suppose there's a possibility. You know, we mentioned him a couple of weeks ago on this show and said that he had a robust action and, you know, you always look for a bowler with a good solid position at the crease and using his body to get the ball down rather than floating it down like a lot of faster bowlers do in, in counter-kick. You, you, you know, a lot of the players that have been up at the top of the averages over the last five years have been what I'd call floaty bowlers, mm. 79, 80 miles an hour, getting the ball to move around, very accurate. But this guy, I think, has a little bit more. He's not quick. He's probably 82 but maybe he could get quicker. And, and you're right, a wonderful story. A guy who was in recruitment in 2014, having had failed attempts at playing counter-kick before and looked like a life in in the office and then has one last go at it and he's a resounding success. It just shows you can be a late developer or a later developer and still have the chance to, to play. And I suppose that links ultimately with what we're going to talk about after the interval, about village cricket and the, the opportunities for them to play at the highest level too. It's a magnificent story, great achievement for Essex. That's the, the top of things. What about the bottom of things? You were in Durham at the weekend. Chance to assess how that county has gone this season, how that club has gone this season, that the penalties against at the start of the season, 48 points in the championship, other deductions in the one-day competitions as well, a salary cap until 2020, which prevents them overpaying for players, uh, perhaps you know, prevents them paying what the players want, and therefore there's always the possibility that they, their young stars could leave. How did you feel, what sort of state did you feel they were in? I feel there's a, there's a bit of disillusionment there at the moment. Uh, they're trying to be optimistic, but I think that, that they've found it very difficult this year to to motivate the team because of the, the, penalty, the penalties that they've suffered, obviously. And I, I think there's this feeling as well that they're targets for you know stealing players because you can pay them better elsewhere. And what was really sad about the event on Saturday night was not that 
Durham have got the worst deal in a way, the T20 late at night in September. But the fact that also Ben Stokes didn't play was, was really disappointing. And, and the ECB misread that. There was a, obviously a collective decision between Stokes and the selectors and, and the coaching staff. And so they gave him a rest for this match. He's never played an international at Durham. And his face and name was in all the, the promotional material before the game. And then he doesn't play. And so, you know, it was getting away. It's just a last straw for them. They've had a terrible year dealing with the the penalties and the financial problems that, that, that have obviously been handed down to them. And then they, they don't have Stokes playing. And then the stand collapsed, or part of it, as well. So it, poor old Dave Harker, the chief executive, would be forgiven for sounding a little bit despondent when I talked to him after the game about how the season's gone. The playing staff in particular, um, you know, they're professional sportsmen, they have their pride, they want to win every game they go into, but it must affect them, the idea that no matter how well they do, no matter how well they perform, they're unlikely to see the benefit of that and, and the rewards that should go with that. So I think it's been difficult for the coaching staff and captain sometimes to lift the lads, particularly as we've got a very young squad, you know. Um, so I think that's been part of that. We knew it would be difficult this season, but until you're in that situation, um, we missed out on the first round of games, so didn't pick up points uh, early doors. We then faced a very strong Nottingham side, so um, sort of three games in, two, three games in, we're still well off the pace uh, and difficult to recover from that. Um, but, you know, to credit, we've, we've had some good performances. We've seen some more young talent emerge and go into next season with a clean sheet and the determination to, to get back into the top flight. I suppose you can take credit for things like the performances this summer of Mark Stoneman, who I know is now playing for Surrey, but was very much a Durham product. You're still producing top cricketers. Obviously, Ben Stokes this year has had a, a fantastic year again. So, although the team haven't necessarily done well with the penalties that they've had imposed on them, the standard of cricket, the quality of cricketers coming out of Durham is, is fantastic. It is. It, it always has been. It continues to be so. My concern would be that our predicament uh, creates opportunities for those counties who perhaps um, invest less resource into the development of their own players, are less concerned with the development of England players and see potentially easy pickings at Durham and taking the best of our talent as it emerges uh, to their own counties. That's something that you know, we're keen to resist. Um, it's not right. Um, there isn't a reward system within the game which properly rewards those counties who devote resources to the development of players. Uh, and that's something that we, we want to change. ECB are going through a situation now where they are reviewing their memorandum of understanding or partnership agreement with the counties and I think that's something that we have to get serious about now. We would like to see proper reward for those counties who do invest in the development of their own uh, talent uh, and a disincentive to those counties who choose not to perhaps invest but would rather um, play the game of sniping and taking players away. I guess, you know, looking at it, at it in a sort of slightly wider way, it's 25 years now since the launch of Durham First Class County in 1992. Obviously, I was involved. You were involved pretty much as well. I mean, you, you must be proud. We're looking across at this ground now. I know it's not, you know, in a way, the finished article, but it's it's you come so far in a way. You've had a handicap this year, but I guess you're positive overall. Yeah, I think you know it's easy to lose sight of what's being achieved here, not only on behalf of uh, of Durham, but on behalf of English cricket as well, and and the setback, the financial setbacks, if you like, and the penalty setbacks of last year. 
actually we're in a stronger and more stable financial position than we have ever been, even you know, perhaps with the rare exception of that first of those 25 years. So the only thing that this club has never really been able to solve is its financial predicament. That has now been solved and it has come with a heavy price. But at least now looking beyond 2018, um, we can look with some confidence that we will you know, continue to contribute to English cricket and continue to, to be a centre for excellence for cricket in the north of England. How does um, having Ian Botham involved help? Uh, Ian's such a, a passionate uh, guy, such a, uh, you know, a strong believer in cricket, a strong believer in this part of the world. Um, and he just gives everyone a lift. And we talked earlier about the setback of getting players up and getting players lifted. Ian walks into the room and he energises that room. He lifts the people. And so in that regard, it's been a huge addition to, to the club. Well, that's David Harker, the Durham chief executive. I think the most interesting thing he said there was, and he makes a very good point, is that what is the point of producing good young players if, if you're struggling financially, people are just going to cherry-pick them, just say, you know, come and play for us. Mark Stoneman was an example of, of someone who moved, who not you know, made his name with Durham and flickered and showed that he had some potential, went to Surrey. Within a few months, he's in the England team. And this has happened, of course, for years in football with the championship teams often losing players. Well, there's a transfer system, isn't there? You can actually buy a player. And in, in cricket, there isn't that. There isn't the, you know, you say, right, we're going to pay half a million pounds for this player because there just isn't the money in the game. I don't know how you get around it because you obviously you want to produce your own players, don't you? They're very proud about that and the fact that you, they produce so many England players. It is an incredible achievement for that club. You know, there's not been in existence as a first-class county for that yeah. long. You, you started off there. If I'd said to you, you know, reeled off in, within 20 years, there'd be a whole host of players who've gone on to play for England. Even you probably wouldn't have believed it there, even though you knew the sort of vitality of the game in the, in the North East. But in football, yeah. you, can ju- you can just get your checkbook out and buy a player, and, and so the club gets compensated for producing players. Whereas in cricket, that doesn't happen. And so that, that is obviously a, a solution to it. The thing about Durham is that they have got an incredible depth of, of cricket in the county. That was one of the reasons why Durham was created in the first place, because it had been a very successful minor county right through the 20th century, really. And there were so many clubs playing, probably second only to Yorkshire in the number of clubs that play the game and, you know, little villages that turn out quite decent teams all the time. And I'm not actually surprised that it has created probably 10 England players in the last 20 years, because you could see even when Durham started, there were lads on the fringes of the team who you could see being top, top class cricketers and having had no first class experience at that stage. Someone like Liam Plunkett, you see, mm. came through that system as well. So never mind the ones that have actually played for Durham, there have been some who've, who've then prospered elsewhere as well. I get a sense, though, from, from David that they're over the worst, that next season they yeah. will better start on a level playing field. But obviously, the how much they're able to pay their players will be an, an issue, and whether they can actually keep them. But I just sense they might be over the worst. They've managed to get off the bottom of the table this year, despite the 48-point the penalty. And actually, it doesn't say a lot for Leicester, does it? Who finished bottom, or will probably finish bottom, because they, they haven't won a single game. No. And you look at the first division, actually, we mentioned Mark Stoneman going to Surrey. They have only won one match. It's a strange old situation, the, the county championship, where, especially that first division, where there aren't that many wins. It, it does seem difficult to, to force wins if weather gets involved. So that just shows you how well Essex have done winning eight matches this season. And uh, look at the bottom of the table, as you say. And the three teams that are competing on 
the last day of last season for the title, Yorkshire, Somerset and Middlesex, one point separates them at the bottom and any, any of them could go down with Warwickshire and probably the, the vital game will be in 10 days' time, Middlesex against Somerset. Uh, Middlesex, who kind of pipped Somerset last year, Somerset could take their revenge on, on Middlesex this year and send Middlesex down, the title winners last year. Do you think it's right in a, an eight-team division that two teams get relegated? Well, I mean, you could have a situation where, I don't perhaps there was a, a playoff for promotion, so the, the top three teams in the second division had some sort of playoff for that one spot to go up. So you, basically, you had one up, one down. And what you don't want to do is completely close it off. It's, it's a difficult situation, isn't it? You, you want to encourage teams to improve in the second division, and you know, Essex winning the title by coming up this season. And yet, it, it does feel that you, you lose a quarter of the teams from the first division just in yeah, one go. Yeah, and uh, the, also you're you're slightly hostage to to the weather, aren't you? Yeah. Especially at this time of year. So, well, an early season as well. Yeah, of course, the county championship is played at, in April and September predominantly, where you can get quite difficult weather. It, it doesn't apply in football, does it? So, even though you might have two out of however many teams going down in football, games aren't called off at the last minute. You don't have people generally firing a crossbow onto a field and causing a, a team to run out of time to improve their over rate as Middlesex suffered and therefore they lost some points in that match at the Oval. So there's all sorts of sort of silly little yeah. ramifications of things that can happen to cricket, this bizarre sport, which means that two down out of eight is sometimes a bit unfair. Well, this bizarre sport has thrown up a one-day series starting on the 21st of, of September between England and West Indies. And finishing on the 29th. The day-night game in Southampton. Of course, it does have relevance because the World Cup is not that far away. England didn't do what they wanted to do in the Champions Trophy. They, they didn't win it. They got knocked out, surprised them, in the mm. semi-finals by Pakistan. But perhaps West Indies in this particular series have got the, the most to gain or lose. Perhaps they've accepted that they are going to end up in the playoff tournament, which could well be held in, in Zimbabwe. It was going to be held in Bangladesh, but of course Bangladesh are, are going to qualify automatically for the World Cup, which is fantastic for their cricket. Would you expect England to win comfortably? I mean, they have been a strong one-day side, especially at home in, in the last year or so. I think, I think I would expect England to win. I'm not saying comfortably, because West Indies have this unexpected... They're, they're an enigma, really, aren't they? they? They suddenly produce incredible fireworks. And they're going to have Chris Gale uh, in the side, uh, who's now said that he's interested in test cricket as well, again, which is fa fascinating. Whether he has the, uh, the fitness to be able to survive a test match, I'm not sure, given that run-out he suffered the other night when he was barely able to get into a canter. But they have got... Some exciting players, Evan Lewis, uh, who's the sort of apprentice to Chris Gale, who reeled off some incredible shots the other night. And, you know, several other players that I've seen. Obviously, Shea Hope will be in their one-day side as well. So they've got some players. I'm not sure whether they've got the bowlers, actually. I think that where England will probably be stronger is they've got quite a nice range of bowlers with varying skills. Obviously, Moen Ali and, and Rashid to spin as well. I really like Sunil Narine. If he plays in the ODIs, he's going to be an interesting bowler. And he's someone, actually, that he maybe he won't play in the ODIs because he bowls two over spells in T20 cricket. It doesn't allow a batsman to quite lock on to what he's bowling. He's a very indescribable bowler. What does he bowl? Off breaks? 
straight honours, little leg rollers. It's very difficult to tell. And batsmen can't sort of set themselves to hit him anywhere. If he played in a 50-over game where he had to bowl 10 overs, I think batsmen would start to read him. But because he's only bowling two or three overs at a time in a match, it's hard to get a lock on to what he's actually bowling. And that's why he's so effective. England already made a key selection decision. Bairstow is going to continue to open instead of Jason Roy. Does that feel the right decision? It's slightly manufactured, isn't it? I mean, Bairstow has played some cricket at the top of the order in one-day cricket this summer, but essentially he's a middle-order player. But it's all needs must. They want to get him in the side. Roy has not taken his opportunity of late. Does it, does it feel right to you? Well, I think it's the right time to reward Bairstow for his commitment and he made 170 for Yorkshire opening the batting early season which is why they gave him a chance in that Champions Trophy semi-final. He got 40 in that, he looked good, he was dropped but he looked you know, like the, he had the, the makings of, of being a, an effective opener. Jason Roy just has had a string of failures. His one chance to succeed on Saturday night at, at Durham got out first ball. That can happen in T20 cricket, but it didn't imbue them with a lot of confidence. And he's had a poor run in the 50-over version, so I think it was right to give Bairstow a go. It might be that Roy just doesn't get back in. The World Cup is, what, a year and a half? When I, when I say doesn't get back in, doesn't get back in mm. time for the World Cup because Hales is still reeling off big scores. If Bairstow makes a success of it, then it'd be it, a bit like when you looked at the England team and said, well, how does Bairstow get in? You might look at the England team and say, well, how does Roy get in with the World Cup, what, a year and a half away? It's a great t- situation for England to be in, really, to have two players that are that good. I think Roy is, is a fantastic one-day player who just has, has lost his mojo just for the moment. But if you think back to, I think it was last year, he got 160-odd in a 50-over game, right, yeah. and most of them were twos. It was an amazing number of... His fitness was extraordinary, never mind the, the range of shots. I think he's a brilliant player, and he's just at the moment struggling for, for, for form. That happens to batsmen. England are in the lucky position of bringing Bairstow in, and I'm sure he'll make a success of it. England go with continuity of selection, though, and they, they give players longer time, time rather yeah. than shorter time. So yeah. I just wonder whether you know, Roy might be thinking, well, is that it for my World Cup what? chances? It seems a strange thing to say when the World Cup is still, what, a year and a half away. But if, if Hales keeps going and Bairstow makes success of it, I don't see how Roy gets back in. There's always going to be opportunities. Look at Owen Morgan. Owen Morgan's actually scored 13 runs yeah. in his last seven one-day innings. That's yeah. T20 innings. So, but he's got three one-day hundreds this year. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, 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 one-day cricket is a, it's a fickle beast. You can very quickly lose it and have no time to get it back until the next year. So he might have to just sit it out for a while, Jason Roy, but I think he'll be back. OK, after the break, we're going to hear about the carpenter and the police constable, whose records at Lord's are better than Sachin Tendulkar's. Welcome back. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to The Analyst Inside Cricket so you get the programme automatically each week. Just click on the button where it says subscribe. And please do continue to leave reviews of this podcast on iTunes. We'd like to know what you think. Now, you've been to Lords. You go to Lords quite often, but a different reason over the weekend. Well, I have never been to this event before, actually. The Village Cup Final, which is now known as the Watson's Village Cup Final, sponsored by Watson's Milk. And it's organised by the Cricketer magazine, and the reason partly that I was there was because I'm editor of the, the mag, and they have a big involvement and, and promote the tournament and organise the tournament. And I was just fascinated to see, firstly, what the standard was like, secondly, how they handled being at Lords, playing in a final, and thirdly, how the MCC do it, do it all. And it's a really impressive day, actually, because 
the players are treated like, like royalty. They're treated like they were international players in every sense that, you know, they use the, the normal dressing rooms and they have the dressing room attendant and they, they go out and practice on the nursery and all that. And it's, it's, uh, it's just a beautiful opportunity to kind of reward a team and a bunch of players who are not professionals, who just play for the total love of the game, but have performed well over a, a series of matches and have the chance, the, the the luxury of playing in a final at Lords. And, you know, you can just see from all their uh, demeanours that it really lifts a club cricketer or a village cricketer being able to play at Lords. And just even though there was probably only, I don't know, 500 to 1,000 people there, it just has that special feeling about it, walking through the long room where at the moment there's a, a massive portrait of Sir Viv Richards you know, it just makes you feel a bit special, really. And, you know, these teams that are sustaining the game are so important for cricket generally. The fact that they they still instill interest in, in the game in their village and bring on the next generation, it's just vital for the future of English cricket that we continue to support and encourage teams like Reed and Sesse playing in the final on Sunday. Well, we focused on club cricket at the start of the season in one of our podcasts, and we we got the sort of feel around the country, didn't we, about how the game was going. People were sort of saying, "Well, I mean, the general feeling was we're we're just about surviving, and we're just about surviving." And what we of course need is for the the game to thrive. So, three hundred entries at the start of the tournament. It used to be more, though, didn't it? You did, and I, I think we'll get it back up again, actually, because there are people out there who perhaps don't know about it or haven't been able to enter in, in the last couple of years. There is definitely a lot of ability still in village cricket. There was a, a very good off-spinner bowling. There was a, a very good keeper, Richard Wharton, who stumped a couple of people down the leg side. There was a, some great field settings, which I loved. There was a, a 7-2 at one point, this little medium pace of bowling for the nursery end, and even an 8-1. They had eight on the offside and one on the leg side. Is and that allowed in one-day cricket? Uh, yeah, well, it is in this particular tournament. And then they switched... And this chap bowls in swing and he had seven leg side and two offside. So it's just a brilliant exploration of cricket and in all its brilliant versatility. I think someone needs to look at the regulations. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. Tom Grease was the captain of Reed from Hertfordshire who won the final at Lords on Sunday, won by seven wickets. He's had two finals at Lords, two excellent returns, 59 with the batting averages and eight with the ball. You spoke to him afterwards. He wishes he could play there every week. I would put that deck in my pocket and uh, run around Hertfordshire with it, um, absolutely. So you come down to Lords, we get put up in a nice hotel opposite, we arrive through the Grace Gates at 9 o'clock in the morning, we have our dressing room assistant who sort of shows us the ropes, you go out to the nursery ground, have a hit, have a bowl, and then as captain go out and do the toss and me blazer and cap as Joe Root did a week ago. This time last week I was playing at, at Reed, which is a lovely ground, but it was raining. And and now one week on, I'm playing at HQ, and it's um, unbelievable. And you're sitting in the, in the dressing room, you've got the honours boards up there. Do you ever stop and think, Ian Botham was in here, and Ben Stokes was in here, and Joe Root was in here? Do you, do you, do you stop and think that? I had a good long look at the honours board, and I thought... There's been a hell of a lot of great cricketers sitting exactly where I'm sitting. You're kind of watching the boys chase down a score and there would have been great cricketers that are watching their boys chase down a score. Sort of 
realise that I'm doing what hundreds of thousands of people dream of doing. And it's absolutely incredible. And you're, you're treated brilliantly by everyone on site at Lords. It's, it's really amazing. Well, that's Tom Greaves, the captain of Reed, who won the Watsons Village Cup final at Lords on Sunday. We're going to finish with our Royal London Player of the Week and our low light and highlights. Royal London Player of the Week. Well, we mentioned him at the start, Simon Harmer of Essex, eight wickets in the match at Edgbaston to cap an, an excellent season. Both he and Jamie Porter, over 60 wickets in the Championship. Great signing. At South Africa's loss, or, or would he have played that much Test cricket? for South Africa. He's 28 years of age. He's played five tests for them. Would he have got in or was it the right time to come and earn some money over here? Well, I think it was the right time for him to come over here, actually, because firstly, we're not replete with great spinners and it's good for our county batsmen to to face a good spin bowler. Secondly, the South Africans have their left-arm spinner, Maharaj, who not only is a fine bowler but satisfies their sort of unofficial quota as well. And incidentally, uh, Otis Gibson was at Durham on Saturday and, and chatted away about his forthcoming challenge as the new coach of South Africa. And uh, he was saying A.B. Villiers isn't quite convinced about playing in the Test Series against Bangladesh that's coming up shortly, but he hopes to persuade him to, to be back and playing a full part in South Africa. And he's very excited about working with Kagiso Rabada as well. He said, I've already spotted a couple of things I can help him with to get him even quicker. So that's slightly worrying for, for the world game. If they can get A.B. de Villiers back engaged and Kagiso Rabada really bowling to his potential, South Africa could be some side, actually, under, under Otis Gibson. But Simon Harmer, I suppose, of all the Colpack signings, Carl Abbott be the other one, mm. has been a great success. And if it's just one per county... I, I can completely accommodate that, especially if he adds something different that English cricketers haven't perhaps got. Low light highlight. My low light of the week was Weston is going to Belfast to play that one day international. The weather was okay. It was it was dry, but the covering on the ground wasn't good enough. Lots of people put a lot of money into that. Cricket Ireland put a lot of money into staging the game. Television company covering it put a lot of money into it. No cricket at all. And that's bad for the image of Ireland cricket. It's bad for the development of Irish cricket. It's bad for those people who want to support it as well. There were lots of people in the ground who came along to watch. And basically, they were sitting there. It was dry, but there was no cricket because it okay it had rained, but the inadequate covering. I and mean, that's something they they need to sort out. I mean, it does rain in Ireland. It rains in in England, and England have done something about it. I know you could say, well, the resources are, are different. You know, there's a lot. ECB is a lot of money, but it, it's something they need to address. You need to get onto the field, especially if you've got that initial outlay. Both well, the television companies, you know, will they cover it again? If, if, you know, if you're not going to show anything, will they cover it again? And Cricket Ireland as well, who had to who put a lot of money into it and saw no reward. And the highlight of the week, uh, international cricket back in Pakistan. What are we to make of that? I mean, can you see an England team going to Pakistan in the near future? Can you see an Australian team going to Pakistan in the near future? I've got a few South Africans who, who went to play for the international eleven. I think they were pretty well rewarded for going. What about international teams going there as opposed to composite teams? Well, I think that the stories that the players will come back with will partly influenced that. Andy Flowers said they were very well looked after. I haven't heard what Paul Collingwood thought of it, but David Milan, of course, played in the T20 matches in the Pakistan Premier League final 
uh, what about three or four months ago uh, in the early season and he loved it and thought it was great so the more players that you get from around the world coming back and saying yeah Pakistan is fine and the other key man in all this will be the man who is number 42 in the cricketer power list this year Reg Dickerson yeah. who I know I mentioned last week but his company were in- involved with the security arrangements for this short uh, number of matches in Pakistan recently and Obviously, he gave them the green light. So he can be a very influential figure in Pakistan's future. The more they do of this, the more confidence they'll be in the international community to to have a full tour there. Well, it would be great if international cricket was played back in Pakistan full stop. Is it going to happen? Well, we shall see. I'd say in the next five years, I reckon a country will, will definitely go and tour there, provided there's no unforeseen terrorist incidents. Okay, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll review the opening matches in the late season one day tournament. Goodbye for now. See you next week. Podcast Network.